0: Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different. Different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you. So I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and leading your best feminist life. Today, leading my best feminist life has led me to the decision to do something a little bit different. So there is no guest today, no interview, you are just getting me. And the reason that you're just getting me is because I had some, well, I still have some really great interviews recorded and I'm excited to share them with you, but it doesn't feel like the right time to broadcast them right now, primarily because we are really experiencing a momentous time in our country's history. And I felt like it would be kind of irresponsible and also a lost opportunity to talk about what's happening right now And as someone with a media platform, I really felt like it was important to take a pause and acknowledge the shift that we're experiencing all around us as a result of not only the pandemic, but of course, that the Movement for Black Lives, which has been active for years, has really broken through a new layer of our national consciousness. So folks who were not previously engaged in conversations or protests or resistance to police violence, racism, white supremacy more broadly. Now, they are. All that to say. Um I'm shifting gears. You're only getting me today. Um I have some regret about that. I think that this is these are conversations that ideally we are having in community and that I would be passing the mic right now to someone who's been very involved in this organizing work. But the reality is that those folks are very, very busy right now, and I wasn't able to bring someone in on short notice. So this is going to be an exercise in sharing what I have learned with you, and I'm going to point out along the way the folks that I have learned from, and I'll be linking their work in the show notes. So just know from the beginning that although I have followed this movement for a long time and I've been involved at various points, I am not an expert in Policing abolition, although it's something I support. And so, this is a lot of this is relatively recent learning for me, too. So, a couple things we'll talk about today. One, you know, one of the things that's happened as a result of this shift in broader consciousness is that activism and advocacy work related to police abolition, that, like I said, has been going on for decades, even before Black Lives Matter or the Dream Defenders were established. You know, it's become a topic of mainstream discussion, and we're starting to see major cities in the United States make moves toward removing police from schools, and even like in Minneapolis, actually committing to dismantling the citywide police department. So we are going to talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean, and I will point you in the direction of some folks who can teach you a lot more about that. I also want to take a moment to focus on the feminist analysis of what's happening right now, because I think sometimes that can really get lost or absorbed into other ways of looking at current events or movements. And in this case, the intersection of current, current events and movements. And there's a lot of exciting movement here that really aligns with feminist values and principles and so I want to make sure that we talk about that specifically and then finally I'm going to say a few words about Juneteenth which is widely celebrated on June 19th which if you're listening on release day is this Friday. Let's start off with talking about police abolition you may be hearing a couple of different terms used for this some folks are calling to defund the police and there tends to be kind of two different schools of thought related to calls for defunding the police one is abolitionist thought like defund the police and replace the entire system with something new The other is reduce police funding drastically and and still have some police, but have them not be as militarized or have them not do as much community policing, basically really reducing the footprint of the police. And those are two different goals, right? Folks who are using the term defund, it's not always entirely clear which of those goals they are talking about. So um, I think the majority of folks who are saying defund the police are abolitionists, however, which means that they are looking to totally dismantle the policing system and replace it with an entirely new system or set of systems. And the reason why is, I think, really grounded in the history of the police. So if we go back and talk about When we first started to see formalized policing in this country, it tended to be in areas where either there were worker uprisings, um, where there were large immigrant communities, or where there was practice of chattel slavery and and enslaved people would emancipate themselves and the equivalent of the police at that time were essentially you know what were called slave catchers who would see their role as recovering property because people were property and returning that property to wealthy white landowners and slavers so that in all three of those cases you have a situation where people who are structurally oppressed systemically you know at a disadvantage or in some cases truly being treated as the property of other people are being controlled policed, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, all of the above by the equivalent, you know, the the beginnings of what we have that has evolved into our, our current policing system. So it's really important to understand that because policing is fundamentally racist from its root, from its core. It is a system that evolved to protect elite people. And the property of elite people. The idea of protecting and serving was never, ever to protect and serve everybody. And I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that it's not like we've always, always had the police. I think the first official police force in this country came about in like the 1830s. So, you know, people who are currently living will, of course, never have lived in a time when there wasn't the police. That doesn't mean we can't imagine a future without police. The police were not written into the constitution. Similarly, with ICE, ICE has only been around since I think the 90s. So there's no reason not to imagine a future without ICE because ICE is um, is relatively new and it's been you know it's a very politicized institution. Another thing that's important to recognize is that the police, although they have been um, racialized and, and had this class bias embedded in them since the beginning. Were not always militarized in the way that they are now. What we've been seeing, especially in the last few decades is just this ramping up of the grade of weapon, the, the sort of riot gear, the having tanks, having these incredibly, incredibly expensive equipment. And then also this philosophical veneer that the police are soldiers and that they're fighting civilians, which of course, police are civilians. So that's really problematic as well. I think when we think of police as occupying a neighborhood or occupying a town, that's, that's a problem. Because it, again, it separates the police from the people. And it creates, it sort of exacerbates an existing power imbalance and this existing dynamic of power and control that has been at the root of many, many, many of these violent encounters and deaths. So a question a lot of folks have is, why abolition and not reform? And there was a great episode of The Daily Podcast a couple weeks ago where reporter Shayla Dewan, who has written about criminal justice for a long time, broke down several reasons why reform historically has not worked and why it's very unlikely to work in the future. So I'm going to summarize that here, but I really encourage you to check out that episode and I will link it in the show notes. The first point that she made was that the police essentially police themselves. So incidents and complaints of brutality are referred often to an internal affairs division, of the police department and unsurprisingly that review tends to favor their colleagues in that review process another reason is that civil servants have a lot of protections, so even if police are fired they can appeal that decision and a lot of times those appeals are successful which is how you get officers who have these really disturbing track records either remaining on the job or being hired into new jobs because sometimes the boards will look at these cases and they'll know that a similar incident of brutality or misconduct has happened. And in that other case, the officer was not punished or not punished as severely. And so they will compare the cases and say, well, you know, we haven't meted out a punishment like this in the past. So this punishment is unjust. And then they will reverse whatever the decision or the consequence was. And so that practice relates to another major issue, which is almost kind of the inverse, which is called qualified immunity. And if you've been following this issue, you're probably very familiar with qualified immunity. This is, like I said, kind of the opposite of what I just described. So instead of there being precedent where the punishment wasn't as severe, in the case of appealing to qualified immunity, if an officer violates someone's rights, unless there is a case existing case law on file where the officer violated someone's rights in exactly the same way as in a given case, that officer cannot be sued in civil court. So if the criminal system doesn't prosecute them, which we've seen over and over and over again where DAs don't prosecute or grand juries don't indict, they also cannot be held accountable by being sued unless what they did is so similar to another case where someone was successfully sued for violating somebody's rights. So that's a little complicated. I hope that I'm describing it correctly, but it, you know, it essentially means that that removes a whole other avenue of accountability. And like I said, qualified immunity is something that we're hearing a lot about right now. The Supreme court actually just declined to make a decision about uh, a qualified immunity case recently, So much, much discussion of that and a lot of work to do there. Another reason reform has been unsuccessful can be seen when we look at the use of citizen review boards, sometimes called civilian review boards. So this is where people from the community, not the police, not the internal review board, but folks outside of the police system review incidents of brutality and misconduct and make recommendations. So this sounds like it would be promising, but... Unfortunately, these boards are often pretty powerless, and if they don't have the authority to really do anything, then they can't be an instrument of accountability. And what Shayla talked about in the podcast is that what you often see is these boards being established and then dissolved and established and then dissolved. So they, you know, they essentially don't really have the teeth necessary to, to truly change anything, to you know, be a deterrent or to be an instrument of justice. And then there are the police unions, which are very powerful and often committed to defending officers in any and all situations, which, again, makes it very difficult to fire officers or for them to remain fired if they are kicked off the force. And finally, even if the officer is fired or charged, both of which are pretty big ifs for reasons we've already talked about then juries have to be convinced that the officer was not just responding to or acting out of what is called quote-unquote reasonable fear, which means that they were justified in using force because they feared for their own lives. And given how dangerous we believe policing to be, although if you look at the statistics, I mean, not that there's no danger in policing, but I think the belief often outweighs the reality, this feels like a very high bar for a lot of juries, especially when you're talking about sending someone to prison for murder. It, I think that the way that we culturally view policing tends to bias juries toward believing that uh, a police officer would never act with ill intent unless they believe that their life was in danger and that their lives are, are often in danger because of the the biases that the jury might hold about the victim. So anyway, those are five or actually six reasons why reform is often so stymied and and ineffective. And when you look at all of these supposed checks on police misconduct together, it's clear that you know, you're kind of looking at a whack-a-mole situation. Like even if you could reform one part of the system, there are so many other loopholes that make these reforms toothless, that focusing on one just kind of strengthens the other. And, you know, there's a lot of places where bad uh, these sort of bad apple cops that we keep hearing about will slide through and slide through and slide through and and remain on the streets. So and, you know, even if that wasn't true, I want to go back to the fact that policing was never intended to protect and serve all citizens equally. I mean, I just I don't think that can be emphasized enough that it was always racist and biased toward protecting property. Of wealthy people so any system that actually did protect and serve everyone equitably would by definition be an entirely new system because we have never had that so it's not like we're trying to get back to some ideal right and that's another reason reform won't work because you're attempting to Mar- mariam kaba talks about you know why like if you look at the root of the words reform like, why would you reform something that's fundamentally not what we want, right? <laughs> that's fundamentally flawed and racist and, and and unequal. It's essentially rearranging a system that, that's broken at its core. So if we think that, which I do, and a lot of people around the country are really starting to pay attention to, uh, what does a new system look like? And there is quite a bit of tension around this question for you know obvious reasons. Um, one of the central beliefs of pol- police abolitionists is that what public safety should and would look like in the absence of police is going to look different depending on the community. So there is no out of the box answer, and that makes people nervous. I think a lot of people, and by this, I mean white people here abolish the police and immediately think, you know, that nothing will replace it and that it's just lawlessness and chaos, right? But the reality is that for many black and brown people, policing already means lawlessness and chaos and violence, right? The police do not equate to safety and in fact quite the opposite. So just because there was is isn't one single definitive answer about once you abolish the police, what's next, that doesn't mean that there are no answers. And so for those answers, I would really encourage you to seek out the work of three women who have been doing this work for a long time Mariam Kaba who I mentioned earlier Ruth Wilson Gilmore and probably most famously Angela Davis and like I said check out what they've written Angela Davis has been all over she was on Democracy Now recently Mariam Kaba just wrote an awesome op-ed for the New York Times so I'll link all of those things links to all these women in the show notes because like I said they can really articulate this uh, much better than I can, but um, to summarize the basic idea of police abolition, currently the police respond to many, many different kinds of calls. And if the money that currently funds the police was redistributed to community-based organizations that were specifically trained and resourced to respond to specific types of needs, all the different kinds of things that police currently respond to, then not only would people's needs be better met because they would be being met by experts, but the money that we spend on public safety would be much more efficiently utilized. Also, and this is key to abolitionist ideology, we may need services and we may need investment in communities to kind of help mitigate some of the circumstances that Tend to cause spikes in crime rates. But we do not need policing, the activity of policing. We don't need people watching us, stopping us, harassing us, invading our space, invading our bodies, and our cars, and our homes, and our communities. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, like if you're hearing that and you're thinking, oh, that that's not been my experience, I'm going to guess that you are white uh, because it definitely happens in communities where large numbers of people of color live and it happens to people of color regardless of where they live. So I think that idea that there is sort of a, a subset of society that has the right to invade the space and invade the bodies of other people to kind of look for anything deemed troubling or problematic, even if no, if, That person is just kind of minding their own business. So ending policing also means moving away from the idea that a lot of minor offenses that police currently go looking for in the form of unnecessary traffic stops and stop and frisk and other types of street harassment would no longer spark these encounters that have led to police violence and murders over and over and over and over over again and this means decriminalizing minor petty things that don't really hurt anybody like loitering or marijuana possession and doing away with the insanely high levels of surveillance that only serve to push huge numbers of people into the criminal justice system which of course is related right if you've if you've seen 13th or you've read Just Mercy or the new Jim Crow or if you or someone you know or someone in your family has been incarcerated you know that mass incarceration in our country is so damaging, so traumatizing that our criminal justice system is massively dysfunctional. Well, actually, many folks would say it's totally functional because it functions as a way to control black and brown people and poor people. And so it's essentially set up to ruin your life. If you don't have money, and this is not an exaggeration, if you don't have money and you end up getting pushed into that system, which is what high-level surveillance policing activity tends to do for a lot of people, then you're screwed. You, you don't have the money to get out of the system, and, and you be essentially, you're trapped. So I will link all three of those resources that I mentioned in the show notes, but I think that's a really important point, too, that the policing of communities is the gateway to the criminal justice system, which is, once you're in, is very hard to get out. If you don't have the money to pay your bail and hire a really um, high-powered attorney, I'd like to talk about what this means in terms of feminism and the feminist perspective on this. A lot of folks' instinct is to say, like, we have to have the cops. From a feminist perspective, we have to have the cops to like protect women. Like, what about what about you know domestic violence? What about rapists? And of course, you know, we have to acknowledge that women are not the only victims of either of those crimes. But if you look at what actually often happens in a domestic violence situation, so the police come, maybe they remove the offender, oftentimes they don't remove the offender, and if they do, it's almost always temporary, so the person comes back, and that there's no, the intervention is purely temporary and purely punitive or carceral, right? There's no, like, rehabilitation that, off, that usually happens, in some states, if the police are called to a domestic disturbance, they actually are forced to arrest somebody. And so it is sometimes the case that the victim ends up being arrested because of this stipulation that someone has to, someone has to be removed from the home. And if the victim has defended herself, and again, it's not always a her, but in this case, hypothetical case, let's say that it is, There's a long history of victims who defend themselves in domestic violence situations facing serious prison sentences because of the presence of a motive. There's a history of abuse and also evidence of premeditation. Um, If a victim keeps a weapon on them for protection, which, again, if there's a history of abuse, is is a very reasonable thing to do, right? But that can be perceived as premeditation. I think it's also worth pointing out that in a lot of cases, the victim doesn't necessarily want the offender to go to prison. They just want the violence to stop. And that's not something that the police are really equipped to help with. But you know what can help with that? Things like living wages, counseling, addiction programs, restorative justice, any service, any... Funding that takes chronic stress off of families and gives them the tools that they need to function as a unit if that's what they want to do. Um, If the victim does not want to continue functioning as a family or a couple, then services that can help those people find a way forward safely and peacefully. Um, Again, not the expertise of the police, right? And this is something that feminists disagree on strongly. Um, So I think it's, I always think it's important to point out when there's tension within feminism, the Violence Against Women Act being a prime example of legislation that reflects what's often called carceral feminism, because it's designed to increase the severity of punishment for gender-based violence. And increasing police budgets as a response to domestic violence also diverts money away from the kinds of programs that might actually allow victims to leave if that's what they wanted to do. So I think um, questioning carceral feminism, questioning the idea that justice and resolution comes, first of all, when an abuser is carted off to prison for longer and longer periods of time, is that rehabilitating anyone? Is that actually serving the family? Is that serving the person who was victimized, right? I, I question that a lot. I think that there's um, some fundamental flaws in that logic But I think it's also really important to emphasize that for a lot of women, especially black women and other women of color, calling the police is not safe. If you are a sex worker or undocumented, calling the police really isn't an option for you either because it's very likely that you will end up incarcerated yourself. And I think one thing that often goes unrecognized in white middle-class feminist circles is that the police themselves may be instigators of gender-based violence. So seeing the police as an alternative to violence doesn't really work when you break it down. Because if the police themselves are violent, and prisons are some of the most violent places in our country, right? So sending people to prison doesn't reduce violence. I think we can begin to see that using violence against women as a way to justify longer prison sentences or more police presence really doesn't work. Um, Because it denies the fundamental fact that both police and prisons are violent. I also want to talk about why defunding the police opens up the possibility for a much more feminist approach to public safety broadly. So my own feminist ideology is one that really prioritizes community and interdependence and that values relationships that are caring and peaceful. It promotes wellness by creating space for people to talk about their lived experiences and people being empowered to make changes that they know will work within the context that they live. So this requires resources and time and trust and space. And it also requires that we stop placing value on the idea that people need to be watched and controlled by the state which equates to people with money and power deciding who gets to do what when and exerting control over the bodies of people who don't have money and power. And these may seem like genderless ideas, but they really aren't when you look historically and now both at who holds money and who has power in our country. And also when you look at how women and children are often ignored or just completely absent from conversations about public safety Um, especially if they live in low-income or predominantly black and brown communities. I think it's also important when we talk about feminism and police abolition to talk about the fact that trans women, the murders of trans women, often go unsolved. When they're reported in the media, women are misgendered or misnamed. When we look at the number of indigenous women who have been disappeared and murdered in this country and never to be searched for, never to be found. It really does show that we have this tremendous bias in terms of who our policing system values and who we see whose lives we see as as worth investigating, what happened to them and, and whose lives we see as worth protecting. And so as feminists, if we are not advocating for those women, if we are not holding our systems to account in terms of, you know, why, why don't we hear, why doesn't the media report on those women more? Why aren't the, you know, why aren't the police more concerned about those women? This is again, another argument for not expecting that of the police because the police were never designed to protect the lives or the interests of indigenous women, transgender women, black women, so that's you know yet another argument for creating a new system and funding community response organizations that that actually care about the communities in which they function. So policing is absolutely a feminist issue and the folks who have been leading this work primarily are women of color. They are also furthering a vision for communities where the people's basic needs are met where they are supported in all areas of life, where justice is responsive and community-based, and where everyone works together to ensure each other's safety, and where the problems that contribute to higher crime rates are addressed because the community has the resources and the power to address them locally. Threats to safety and security most often come from failures of institutions to address health, education, cost of living, etc. And feminism can help us vision a future where these needs are universally met. Finally, before I wrap up today, I wanted to say a word about Juneteenth, a day celebrated each year to observe the day that federal troops arrived in Galveston and brought the news to the enslaved people in Texas that they were finally free. And Texas didn't have much of a presence from the Union Army after the end of the Civil War. They just kind of went about their business as usual, even after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So it was over two years later that enslaved people in Texas were emancipated. And this day marks the celebrations that, that broke out across the state once that news finally arrived. So to everyone listening, if you don't know a lot about Juneteenth, I encourage you to learn more about it. I know that this year it is being observed in more workplaces than ever, which is Awesome. And if this is a holiday that has been part of your life uh, for a long time, happy Juneteenth from Feminist Hot Dog. I hope that however you observe the day, that it brings you joy and abundance. Happy Juneteenth. Thank you all for listening today as I made my way through a lot of material. Again, I am not an expert. I know that I don't always have the exact right words for things, but I hope that you Uh, learned something and that you found it helpful and hopeful. And I also that I hope that you will give me your feedback or send me your questions either through Instagram or through the Feminist Hot Dog website. There's a contact form on there. And if you are enjoying the show, I do want to tell you about two ways that you can support it. One is to become a patron. So Feminist Hot Dog has patron levels for as little as three dollars a month. And having that support every month really does make a huge difference for me, especially since I am now out on my own writing and podcasting full time. So, thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if you would like to support the show, just visit patreon.com and search for Feminist Hot Dog. There's only one. Another way you can support us is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And this is hugely helpful for getting the show bumped up and visible for new listeners and it only takes a second so if you haven't already please rate and review feminist hot dog also makes a huge huge difference our theme music is by ava luna and loyalty freak music i look forward to chatting with you on facebook instagram and twitter and until next time love yourself and love your buns good